him in some way. And on Jesus' part, he has grown more direct, more confrontational, more condemning for their hypocrisy and their unbelief as they have worked through this chapter. The authority of Jesus grows, and as it grows, the authority of the religious leaders, there is tension building. And so we see within the flow of Mark, it is leading to the tensions reaching their height at the end of the Passion Week. It's leading us to the cross, and so we see that, and we'll recognize that in the flow. But also within each of these confrontations, the questions asked and the answer given provide for the church today great wisdom and insight both to who Christ is and how we are to think and to live as Christians and so we want to delve into that insight a little bit when I was 14 years old I got to play on a baseball team that was involved in this international tournament and so there's teams from Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic, Venezuela, United States. So it was a neat opportunity. But the one thing that really sticks in my mind the most is playing this team for, from the Dominican Republic. <clears throat> and it sticks in my mind because the pitcher for that team was so much better than anyone on our team. It, it was such a mismatch. So we come out, we're all excited, get up there. You know, the first couple innings, we're giving it our all. And, I mean, we're not even coming close to getting a hit off this kid. So by the third inning, it became, we were more just entertained with how good he was. I, I remember my first two at-bats. It's funny, I can remember all the way. It's getting further and further away from when I was 14. I, I didn't come close to even making contact. And so we're playing this team and just getting destroyed and dominated I'm up to bat, the end of the game, it's well out of reach, two outs, last inning, and I hit a weak little ground ball to first base that was fielded in an easy out. But I felt somewhat of a victory in that moment, so we got no hit. And it was just one of those, the, the, the match was, it was such a mismatch that by the end of the game, it just became almost comical. I feel like that's where we're at now with these religious leaders coming to Jesus, taking their best swing at him, trying to trap him, stump him, and then leaving humiliated with their tail between their legs as he dominates them once again. We just saw last week that they, the Sanhedrin put together this unlikely pair of Pharisees and Herodians, politically opposite people, and together they team up to really take on Jesus, and he immediately shuts them down. Now he sends the Sadducees to them. A little bit about the Sadducees. They were kind of a smaller group. They were almost just like the socially elite. They were the wealthy, influential people in the society of the Jews. They had a lot to say with what went on in the temple. They had a lot of influence, as much because of their wealth and status as anything else. They deny certain things. You see, they they categorically denied the existence of angels and demons. So that was one of their major stances. They believed in the Torah as the word of God. That is the first five books of the Bible, but nothing else. So they would have denied that the prophets, the writings, the history, any of that would have been an authoritative word from God. They just looked at the Torah alone. And then we see in this passage, they deny the resurrection. They denied that there was a resurrection from the dead. And so they come to Jesus and they offer this 
really tough question, this riddle that they are going to bring to him. You get the sense, I'm pretty sure as you go through, that this is like a, a trusty old question that they bring up. If you've ever been in theological debates, especially like first year of seminary, when guys are super confident and have zero idea what they're talking about, and they get in these theological debates with one another, and you kind of have a specific question that you think, okay, I don't know the answer to it, but I can at least stump the other person with this question. And it seems to be this is the riddle that the Sadducees use. So what they're trying to do is, in this riddle, undermine the authority of the resurrection. It's a in logic, the, the argument would be called reductio ad absurdium, which would be reduction to the absurd. And so the idea is this, that I'll take your statement, your position, and I'll tease it out so far that the furthest implications of what you said sound ridiculous. Therefore, what you said must not be true because the, the furthest implications of it are absurd. And so they're trying to disprove the resurrection by taking its furthest implication and saying it's absurd. And so then put Jesus in a spot where either he will have to deny the resurrection or defend it and look silly doing so. And so what they do is they use what is called the Leveret Law. The Leveret Law. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 5 or chapter 25, you, you will read about the Leveret Law. And it was an allowance and it was a, a law that the Lord allowed that if a young widow, if her husband were to die and they were childless, then a relative of the husband should marry that widow, all right? And the first child that they would have together would be considered the offspring of the deceased husband. So it would work... You know, they just got married, the husband dies, they have no child, a relative marries that woman now. They have a child together, and that first child is considered an offspring of the deceased husband. And it was a way to pass on the name, to pass on property, to pass on inheritance. That, that allowed this deceased man's property and all of his work and name to continue. And so you see what they're trying to do is, okay, let's say that happens. And just like the Leverett Law, like you put into place here, God. Um, let's say the husband dies and another person marries this widow, but then he dies again without having a kid. And this happens seven times. And then in the end, she dies. When the resurrection happens, who's her husband? The last person she was married to? The first person she was married to? Are they just locked into like awkward family photos for all eternity with seven dudes hanging with this one girl. Like, what is the issue here? So Jesus is going to answer their question. He's going to do it in two ways, but before he does, he answers a different question for us. One that comes into my mind sometimes, and that is, why are these religious leaders who should have had their life given to understanding the Old Testament, have all this interaction of Christ to see his power, to see all this, how is their theology so bad? How do they get it so wrong? And really, I just want to take one step over and say, how does our theology go bad? How does the church's theology 
go bad? How does the church get it so wrong? Well, Jesus gives a simple but insightful two reasons in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You do not know the scripture. On an individual level and a church level, do we give ourselves to the scripture? We believe and attest that we have the inspired word of God. God has spoken to us and revealed himself to us. All that we need for life and for godliness, for salvation, life itself is in this book. And yet, you know, not to shame, but just the truth of it, by human nature, we go seasons and long seasons just ignoring it. We find it hard to go to it. We don't pay attention to it. We give an inordinate amount of time to entertaining ourselves in every other way. But do we go to the scripture where God has spoken and where life is transmitted? What the spirit uses to open our eyes from, from churches. I mean, you should always expect at the bare minimum from me to hold me account that when I stand, it's thus saith the Lord. Maybe you don't agree with every little way I interpret something, but I should never be standing up here just spouting off opinions. And yet, unfortunately, you look across the church and scripture is just not preached. Or we come with an idea in our mind of something we want to do or see or think, and so we come to scripture and find a a verse we can use and then jump off of that verse and, and build a case for ourselves, not really coming with an open mind that then closes upon the scripture. G.K. Chesterton said, the reason, you come with, the reason you come with an open mind is so that as you come to the scripture, it can close upon it, to take the truth, to lock it into our hearts and our minds. I think the case for most of us is not that we just outright decide, oh, we don't like the Bible, we're going to ignore it. I think it's just we don't give the time to it, and then we are constantly, subtly bombarded through music, through articles, through TV, through commercials, with a wholly different anti-theistic approach to life. I think we're influenced by it more than we realize. And our loyalties start to, to move a little bit, and we need the scriptures then to fit under those loyalties. There's a thing that Ligonier and uh, Lifeway Ministries does. I've referred to it in Sunday school before. Every two years, they do a, a huge survey called the State of Theology within America. And they ask several questions of the church, so evangelical, mainline, and Catholics who call themselves Christian, professing Christians who attend church on a somewhat regular basis at least. And they ask these questions and see, okay, what is the state of theology? Let's do a few of them. So the statement, God learns new things. He adjusts and adapts to changing circumstances. And then you're supposed to do, I agree, disagree, or don't care. So of that statement that God learns new things, adjusts and adapts to changing circumstances, only 32% of the Christian church disagrees with that. 
God accepts and honors all faith and worship of all religions, Christian, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism. 24% of the Christian church disagrees with that statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 32% of the church disagrees with that. We are born innocent, without sin, in the eyes of God. 21% of the church disagrees with that. Gender identity is purely a matter of choice. 51% of the church disagrees with that. <clears throat> it's just a subtle drift. And pretty soon, why is your theology so bad? You don't know the scripture. Your worldview is planted in you by something other than the scripture. Secondly, you do not know the power of God. Are we experiencing, acknowledging, noticing the power of God? Is our faith being built up by prayer? Are we seeing fruit of the Spirit produced in us by faith that is nurtured by the Word of God? Are we serious about fighting sin? Do we rest in hope and in that forgiveness when we fall in temptation? As we approach God, as we do so together corporately, are we moved at all by the call to worship? Do we hear it? Do we hear the law of God? Do we rejoice in the assurance of pardon? As we pray together, do we, we understand Christ is in our midst? We're coming before the face of God in prayer, singing truths about God. You think of the psalmists as they rehearse and they talk about calling their hearts to worship. Immediately they start to rehearse the benefits of God, to remember what he has done for us. And so we see, it's, you can see it in the letters to the churches in, in Revelation. It's a matter of both mind and heart. It engages both the intellect and the affections. Our Christian life, our theology should be both about doctrine and doxology. That is to say, it is learned, but it also is lived. Is your walk with God both confessional and relational? He says, you want to know why you're getting it wrong? You do not know the scripture and you do not know the power of God. Now he answers their question more specifically in verses 25 through 27. Well, we're going to look at the second part of the answer first, verses 26 to 27. Jesus says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You remember the story at the beginning of Exodus, Exodus chapter three, as the nation of, of the Hebrew people, they're in Egypt and the Pharaohs have forgotten Joseph and all that he did for them. And Hebrew people have grown. The heart of Pharaoh turns against them. And we see at the beginning of Exodus that God has not forgotten his people, and so he raises up Moses. Moses at the time is hiding out in the wilderness, a shepherd for his father-in-law. And so God comes to him in Exodus 3, and he comes to him in the form of a burning bush that is not being consumed. And of course that catches Moses' attention. Jesus, then God speaks and says, ground that you're standing on is holy ground and then he follows it with I am the God of your father Abraham of your father Isaac of your father Jacob 
And there's this interaction through Moses with Moses. And then Moses, still feeling overwhelmed, says, well, if I go to the people and tell them, follow me out of Egypt, like you're telling me to, who should I tell them sent me? And that's when God responds with the name Yahweh. I am who I am. And what does he follow it up with? And I am the father. I am the God of your father Abraham, of your father Jacob, of of your father Isaac, of your father Jacob. And I will be forever. And so we see the argument here is that God called Abraham out of Ur. And at the heart of that promise and that covenant to him is salvation. That he will be his God. Abraham will be his child forever. And yet Abraham has physical death. And so the promise expands to, to Isaac and to Jacob. And so he's saying you misunderstand it if you think the promise to God only, the promise and covenant of God that is an eternal promise only lasts until their earthly life is over. That the final word is left to death. No, God is their God forever. If they've experienced physical death, but he is still their God, then he has resurrected them. Because he's the God, the father of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. He's not God of the dead, he's God of the living. And so he builds his argument that way. It's interesting that he goes to Exodus 3. You might think, that's not the place I would go to talk about the resurrection necessarily. Remember, the Sadducees deny everything outside of the first five books of the law. Jesus, as a master teacher, takes them to the first five books of the Bible, to the law. And there proves to them the resurrection. But then we come back to verse 25. This will be our last point if we go to the table. And in verse 25 then, he begins to explain to them that, yes, the resurrection is real, but they also have a wrong understanding of the state of the resurrection. Verse 25, for when they rise, not if, when, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. All right. One, again, he uses angels here because they deny angels. He's just taking them to task all over the place. But at the heart of it, he says, you have a misunderstanding of what the resurrection is. The Sadducees are assuming if there is resurrection, it's just you're living, you die, you're raised, and then life just continues like it is right now. So it would be like you go to work on Tuesday, you walk out, get hit by a bus, you get resurrected, you go to work on Wednesday, and you're still answering emails to annoying co-workers, and like, like goes on. He said, no, the resurrected life is a new life. It, it is altogether different than the life that you are living right now. You have too, far too earthbound of a vision of heaven. And so he uses the angels to, to say, your, your earthly categories are not working for you to make sense of the resurrected life. Think of it more like the angels. Not saying that we're all going to become exactly like angels, but that's the category of a heavenly being, of a heavenly existence. It, it is that the, the glorious realities of the life to come cannot be accommodated, 
cannot be described by the pedestrian realities of this earthly life. So that even the most joy-filled, fulfilling, satisfying parts of this life, of this earthly life, fall woefully short to accommodating our understanding of the resurrected life. Present earthly experiences are entirely insufficient to forecast the divine heavenly realities of glory. So he wants to take us out of this category. It's because of this truth that we do know some about the resurrected life. We, we know that unimaginable glory awaits and there's so much hope there. But I also know that it can leave people a little frustrated with unanswered questions. What exactly are we going to be doing in the resurrected life? What's our day look like? What do we look like? What, what will we be doing? And so we can start to imagine kind of on a couple different pendulums. Is it going to be like, I don't know, basically I'm living my life now only... I'm in better shape and I can fly or something like that. Or we swing over here and it's like, no, we're just glowing people sitting on clouds, strumming a harp 24-7. Well, no, I don't think either of those quite get it for us. And one of the frustrations that can come is one of the, the primary categories of how we understand reality in this life is marriage. And yet, marriage, as it operates here, as we understand it here, is not a sufficient category to understand what the resurrected life is like. It's a foreshadow. It's a foretaste of the marriage banquet. Just like this is a foreshadow of the table feast to come. But it's just a foreshadow. It's just a taste. It's, it's not the exact same thing. That banquet, the, the great, the center purpose of it will be communion with God. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, joy and satisfaction and fulfillment will be complete. All right. So the thing everyone's thinking then, I know it can feel a little weird. And perhaps if you're happily married, you think this is a bummer. <laughs> you know, I actually love my wife. I love my husband. Like it's, I, I would, I'm a little bummed out that this is what the resurrected life is going to be like. I've even heard it. Well, I guess I haven't heard it personally said. I've read it of other people hearing it say, you know, like someone, you know, if, if I can't be married to Sally in heaven, then I don't want to be in heaven. And yeah, I know you're trying to make a big deal of your love here, but it's more just you're not understanding. It's an altogether different experience. Two things for your encouragement. One, and I don't say this in jest. I, I really do mean it. For those who have experienced divorce, abusive relationships, singleness when they want to be married, or they are just in a marriage that is not very happy and they're just remaining faithful, this can be a word of encouragement and hope. Again, I don't say it in jest. In all reality. But let me encourage us with this. Is that all 
Earthly conditions and conventions, relationships, will yield to gloriously better heavenly ones. That, that there will no longer be a foretaste or a shadow, no longer just common grace and in the midst of fallenness, but a, a glorified, perfect, majestic, eternal home. One in which we will be perfectly fit to enjoy it in its fullness, and it will be perfectly fit to receive us. That is to say, there will be no disappointment when you get to heaven. I often don't push back on people when they are, especially when they're going through loss and they're, they're trying to make sense of what is my loved one experiencing? What is it like right now? Because even if you have something in your mind and you're not right at all, it's way, 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 way better than that. <laughs> Unimaginably better than that. So what can we say? Just a few things about the resurrected state. As it says, we're like angels, not given in marriage. What, what all does that mean? Again, well, we don't know everything about it. But I will say this, that I think by God's purpose and creation and by what we see of Jesus Christ after his resurrection, we, we know that we're not just going to be like genderless souls floating around. He will resurrect the body. He will give us a glorified body. And so because of that, we, we will still have individuality and personality. We don't just kind of morph into a higher power of some sort. Just because we're not given in marriage the way we think of it here, it won't, it's not like we just kind of dissolve. No, we have a glorified body. A glorified soul, still individuality and personality. And we are recognizable. In fact, I would say we are more fully known than you will ever be known by someone here. And you will know others more fully. You will be more lovable and you will have a more expansive ability to love. You will be more relational in community. And so it doesn't cease to be that you in a glorified body are individual and you're still recognizable and have this capacity for loving relationships and to be loved. It'll be in a fullness that you cannot imagine right now. I think it's safe to say we will be exactly God intended us to be. That is in the fullness of our strength, in the fullness of our mind, a full capability, a fullness of our holiness, a fullness of, of ability, fullness of imagination, a fullness of industry. And so I think it's safe then to make the inference from there that whether it's a, a little one who dies in infancy or someone who dies of old age, someone who's taken suddenly, or someone who's riddled with disease. For them in eternity, they will be at their complete fullness of who God made them to be. In every way, fully recognizable, fully lovable, capable of loving. An individual, body and soul. 
before our Savior. Jesus looks at the Sadducees. You can see how he finishes just with the statement, you are quite wrong. The resurrection is assured. I can go back and tell you from the Torah that it's assured. But in a few short days from them, Jesus Christ himself will not just be the supreme teacher on the uh, resurrection. He will be the resurrection and the life. Our resurrection will be assured as we are hidden in Christ. You have it quite wrong. And I get it can be hard to work out because earthly conventions just fall short of explaining to us and satisfying the mind with the joys that are to come. So he says, think of it in the heavenly realm, think in an altogether different realm. But know whatever you're capable of here, you'll know it in all of its fullness. However you're known here, you will be better known in heaven. However you love here, you will be more capable of that love in the resurrected life. Jesus Christ himself, take upon us himself the death we deserved so that indeed we can share in the resurrection. Sin had no hold on him. Those who are hidden in Christ the same as the, the same thing is true. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the resurrection. Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ is a master teacher, can make things known to us. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't grow frustrated or disappointed in having some unknowns But understand, we're thinking about it wrong. If we think it's going to be like it is now, only just a little better. Lord, earthly conventions fail for us to understand what life without the curse is like. Lord, so we rejoice in that heavenly hope of the resurrection. Give you just a moment, thoughtfulness there. Keys will play through a song and then we will transition into our time at the table.